Please turn in your Bible to Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16. We're going to continue our series in this wonderful book of wisdom. Now there's a rite of passage that most Americans experience in one form or another in the late spring of each year, and that is the graduation ceremony. These ceremonies, they mark, of the end, they mark the end of several years of work to obtain a diploma, and this, this certificate they receive says, you've done it. And, and the commencement ceremony is the beginning of this next chapter. Uh, for the people graduating and the parents of these people, they are told this is a big deal. Uh, this is the day, a day you will remember for the rest of your lives. It's, it's the, the turning of a page, the, the marking of an end of a, of a season, of a chapter. Now, I find it ironic how this occasion is described as so monumental in the language that we'll use, uh, that the people graduating are held up as so promising, so unique, uh, individuals of seemingly limitless potential, yet this experience is so common to so many of us. And these ceremonies repeat themselves in very similar fashion, not only every year, but thousands of times each spring. I was curious. I was like, I mean, how many graduation ceremonies, high school or college, are there every year? Anybody? I mean, I'm not going to ask anybody to guess. So, I mean, there are about 30,000 high schools in the United States. 30,000 high schools. There's 50 states, and quick math would yield the answer that there's about 600 high schools in each state. Now, they vary widely as far as how many numbers uh, are in each state. In Delaware, I think there's about 85 high schools. In California, there's almost 4,000 high schools. Lots of high schools in the United States. And every one of those high schools has a graduation ceremony in late spring. Now, there's also colleges, right? And there's about 4,000 colleges recognized in the U.S., which is a, an average of 80 per state. So that gives us about 34,000 graduation ceremonies that are taking place every spring. 34,000. That's a lot of graduation ceremonies and a lot of caps and gowns and lots of pomp and circumstance. And each of these ceremonies is highlighted by a commencement speech. It's a speech given by some somewhat notable local figure or well-known figure, and they generally follow the same format. They start with a question or a quote or an anecdote. They recognize the accomplishment of the group. They share some advice. They look to inspire and to motivate. They look ahead to hopes and dreams for the future. In an analysis of, of over 100 of the most popular recent commencement speeches, one author came to the conclusion that they all contain these same four tips. Dream big, dream big, work hard, make mistakes, and be kind. That's like the gospel of our day. Dream big, work hard, make mistakes, be kind. They often conclude with well wishes, like that of a speech that Kermit the Frog gave in 1996. May success and a smile always be yours, even when you're knee deep in the sticky muck of life. In 2012, a gentleman by the name of Charles Whelan took a different approach at the commencement address he gave at Dartmouth College. He opened his speech with this line, I became sick of commencement speeches at about your age. He went on to say that he's found that the over-optimistic words of the typical commencement address hold few of the lessons young people really need to hear about what lies ahead. So they really don't tell them what they need to hear. And so instead, he went on to give 10 things your commencement speaker won't tell you. 
And this is what made up his speech. It included lessons like, number two, some of your worst days lie ahead. He said, graduation day is a happy day, but my job is to tell you that if you're going to do anything worthwhile, you will face periods of grinding self-doubt and failure. Number three was, don't make the world worse. <laughs> I know that I'm supposed to tell you to aspire to great things, but I'm going to lower the bar here. Just don't use your prodigious talents to mess things up. He said, I'm not asking you to cure cancer. I'm just asking you not to spread it. <laughs> Number five was help stop the Little League arms race. He said, kids' sports are becoming ridiculously structured and competitive. What happened to playing baseball because it's fun? The message we're sending from birth is that if you don't make the traveling soccer team, then you will somehow finish life with fewer points than everyone else. That's not right. You'll never read the following obituary. Bob Smith died yesterday at the age of 74. He finished life in 186th place. 186th place, that was hard to say. You won't read that. Number 10 was don't try to be great. He said there is absolutely nothing wrong with being solid. On that spring morning in 2012, Whelan shared some insightful and helpful things. There's some wisdom in some of the things that he said, but the wisdom of this commencement speech or any other although held out as wisdom of life, falls far short of the wisdom that we encounter in the book of Proverbs. Over the last several months, we've seen how this book presents to us again and again the wisdom of God for life. It's shown to us as two paths, two paths which are ever before us, the path of wisdom and the path of folly, the path of righteousness and the path of wickedness, the path of life everlasting and the path of death. Two ways, two choices, two paths. Proverbs wants us to hear and to see and to know and to feel that the Lord's ways are far better than any other way. To know God and to walk in His ways, to love Him and to desire His ways, to trust Him and to fear Him is the path to blessing, to flourishing, and eternal joy. And our text this morning is no different in its aim. In Proverbs 16, 1-15, we'll see once again that there is nothing better for us than walking in the Lord's ways. So with that in mind, let's now turn our attention to this text, to these verses. This is God's word, God's word for us today. He speaks through these words. Follow along with me as I read from Proverbs 16, beginning in verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. Verse 11, a just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. 
It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face, there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would impress this word upon us today. As we consider the reality of your rule and your reign, as we look at your wisdom, we ask that you would shape our imaginations and our affections. Help us to see all things through the lens of your word, trusting in your sovereign will. Lord, we are a needy people, a people that is entirely dependent upon you. We are an ordinary people asking you to do extraordinary things in us. So would you do that by your grace? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we consider this text together, I want us to consider in commencement speech fashion, uh, I want us to consider four truths to live by. Four truths to live by. Now up to this point, we've been through whole sections of Proverbs, whole chapters, where God is not mentioned explicitly once. Now while he's certainly behind all that is said, Solomon often doesn't use his name. But then we come to chapter 16. And I don't know if you noticed, but God is everywhere present. In those first nine verses, the, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, is used eight times. Every verse except for one. Solomon wants us to know the goodness of living under God's rule according to God's ways. So now we're going to consider lesson number one. Your plans are not your hope. Your plans are not your hope. Our text opens with a statement that part of what it means to be human is to plan. That's what humans do. It's to, to look ahead, to desire a future. These are the plans of our heart. And chapter 16, verse 1 says, The plans of, heart, of the heart belong to man. But just as verse 1 affirms this about our humanity, it also orients us to a far greater reality, a deeper reality. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. We may plan, but the Lord is the one who gives the answers. Scripture attests to this complete and total sovereignty of God in many places. Consider Caiaphas in John chapter 11. Uh, there, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, and the chief priests and Pharisees are trying to determine, what do we do about Jesus? And Caiaphas, the high priest, he says to them in John eleven forty nine 49 and 50, this is what he says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. And then John says this in verses 51 and 52 about Caiaphas. He did not say this of his own accord, but prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Caiaphas had his plans, but the answer is from the Lord. We make our plans and we have this illusion of control, but the answer always belongs to the Lord. Verse 2 goes on to tell us more about our plans. They always seem right to us. Have you noticed that about your plans? They always seem like a really good idea. 
No one purposely makes bad plans for themselves. The ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. They always make sense. They always seem good. But the Lord's perspective is the one that matters. It goes deeper than what we see. The Lord weighs the Spirit. We may think we're right, we're smart, but God sees our motives. And what He sees is what Romans 3.23 tells us about ourselves, that we all fall short of the glory of God. None of us can meet His standards of purity, of righteousness, of holiness. We miss the mark. We are a sinful people. But this falling short, this missing the mark, isn't a call to despair for the people of God. For those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, this is not a call to despair. Instead, it's a call to complete dependence upon Him. The answer to our failed plans, whether it be in motive or in execution, is to turn to God. That's what verse 3 tells us, to commit your work to the Lord. You are called to be a people who works. We are called to be a people who works. But we are called to commit our work to the Lord. And your plans will be established. And uh, a few weeks ago, I preached from Psalm 127 and talked about how unless the Lord built the house, those who build it labor in vain. This verse is making much the same point. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Our hope is not in our plans. Our hope is in the Lord. Our plans, if our hope is there, we'll be disappointed. But if our hope is in the Lord, we will not be disappointed. We are called to commit ourselves, our ways, our plans to Him, hoping in Him, not in our ability to do something. Instead, we trust in God's all-sufficient grace and power to accomplish what He wills. So our plans are not our hope, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ is our hope. That's the first first lesson to live by. Your plans are not your hope. Number two, God has made everything for its purpose. God has made everything for its purpose. So we see at the beginning of verse four, the Lord has made everything for its purpose. It's a simple statement, but it has massive implications. There is nothing that falls out of the implications of this declaration. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. So let's ask a few questions about this statement. Who has made everything? Who has made everything? Well, this verse tells us, the Lord. See how it's all, in all caps, the Lord in your Bible? So this is the the covenant name of God, the name that God gives himself. The Lord has made everything. This is not an out-of-control, confused, changing tyrant that makes everything. This is the Lord. The God of the covenant. The God who was, who is, and who forever will be. The one who reveals himself as being merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding, abounding, overflowing in steadfast love and faithfulness. That Lord has made everything. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We heard recently, he is the Father of lights, the giver of every good and perfect gift, He is the one with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's who has made everything. The Lord who is the creator, the one who makes all things. So what does this verse say that he has made? If you read it in Hebrew, it's going to have the same implications as this word in English. What has God made? 
Everything. 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 He has made the sun, the moon, the wombats and the naked mole rats, apples and bananas, dragon fruit and kiwi, broccoli and lettuce and carrots. He has made 500 types of sharks. Did you know that? 500 types of sharks. He has made 11,000 types of birds. 11,000 types of birds. I can think of like six. (laughs) He's made 11,000. And this everything, he has made everything. The Lord has made everything. He has made the estimated 100 to 400, pretty, pretty wide range, 100 to 400 billion stars in our galaxy. God has made them. He has made everything. Oh, by the way, it's estimated that there are 100 to 200 billion galaxies in the universe. So in our galaxy, the Milky Way, 100 to 400 billion stars. And they're hoping that maybe by like 2025 or 2030, they'll have a better idea of how many stars are in our galaxy, our galaxy. And then they're like, but there's also like 100 to 200 billion other galaxies out there. God has made it all. But the God who makes the big, the galaxies, he's also made you and me and every other of the 110 billion people who have walked this earth. Each of them unique. 110 billion people, each of them unique. Each of them fearfully and wonderfully made. Each of them with around 37 trillion cells that make up their body. I mean, those are numbers we cannot even, we don't, I can't fathom 100 billion, but 37 trillion? That's how many cells make up our body. And God has made it. Everything. But it's not just the material things that God has made. His creative work is behind our emotions and our feelings and our desires and our souls and our appetites and our longings. He has made everything. The Lord has made everything. And why has God made everything? Verse 4 tells us that He has made everything for its purpose. For its purpose. Everything that He has made, there's a reason. I mean, you see this at times with the... I should have looked this up because I know nothing medically. Any medical questions I get, just talk to Christine. How's your mom doing? How's her health? She's doing good. So what's the latest? I, you should ask Christine. <laughs> I'm going to say something that's wrong. I, that's one of the things I appreciate about Chris doing our pastoral prayers. It's like whenever he prays for somebody and something going on, it's always going to be medically accurate. <laughs> it's a gift. But what I was thinking of is like, I remember growing up and hearing that the, nobody knows what the appendix does, why we have an appendix, but it can kill you. But it's one of those things where it's like over time... I think people, they're, maybe they're starting to learn, like, oh, no, the appendix actually does have a purpose. But like all of creation, everything that God has made, is made for a reason. All of it is to put on display the glory of God. But everything has a purpose. And that includes the circumstances that you face. There is a sovereign hand of God behind every one of your circumstances. And so when we are walking through any situation in our lives, we should always be asking those questions and looking for, God, God, what is your purpose in this? You have me here for a reason. 
What do you want to teach me? How do you want to shape me? What am I called to learn here? God has made everything for its purpose. And all things work according to the counsel of His good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's a song that uh, we recorded for the next Sovereign Grace music album. I think it'll, the song will come out sometime early next year. And it's called All Things. And the chorus goes like this. It says, I know you are working. You are working all things, all things for your glory and my good. Lord, you will accomplish everything you've promised, all things for your glory and my good. The fact that God has made everything with purpose, for its purpose, should give us great peace in the midst of everything that we face. It should give us joy in the midst of sorrow. God has made everything for its purpose. This fact leads us to the third lesson to live by. God's standard is the standard that matters. Part of our human nature is to always be evaluating. At Christmas time, we evaluate what we want, and you're asking, hey, what, what, should, what would you like for Christmas? And so we're evaluating. Uh, we evaluate what might bless someone else. Huh, what should I get that person? What would bless them? We're evaluating. Uh, we evaluate where to get the best deal. Uh, I'll, I'll, let, me, let me stop by this store and see what the sale is. Oh, let me check Amazon. Oh, it's Black Friday. Maybe I should check there. We're always evaluating. Or we evaluate when the best time to go shopping is. I know it would be cheaper here, but man, that's going to be hectic. Like, I'm not doing it. We're always evaluating. We also evaluate big things, really big things. Who, who should we marry? Where should we work? Where should we live? When should we retire? We are, all, we are people who are always evaluating. And these kinds of evaluations and assessments, they, they matter. I mean, this is why we need wisdom. They're important. But the most important part of these evaluations is not first the question that we're asking, but the standard for our evaluations. When we evaluate our lives and our decisions, our plans and our hopes, what are we measuring them against? That's what matters. That's what makes all the difference. What is the standard for our evaluation? How do we know if something is good or bad? You see, you can be asking the right question, but answering it according to the wrong standard. And that is what our text is getting at here. Verse 5 tells us that the standard of the proud is an abomination to the Lord. He despises those who are wise in their own eyes. Why? Why does God hate pride so much? Why does He hate the arrogant in heart? Why can they not even be in the presence of God? That's what it means to be an abomination. Why? It's because this is an attitude that puts self in the place of God. That's what pride, pride does. All pride does. Puts self in the place of God. One theologian once said it's the complete anti-God state of mind. It says, pride says, I am the definer of my reality, the decider of my destiny. I establish the standard of assessing my life. I am my own God. That's what pride is. And we live in a world of people who live according to this dogma, who have exchanged the truth of God and His righteous rule for the lie of their own pathetic sovereignty. It's the world we live in. But what God calls us to is so much better. Verse 11 tells us how a just balance and scales are the Lord's. They belong to Him. All the weights in the bag are His work. 
So as he rules over all things, as he is the standard to measure all things by, that standard is just and fair. God is not tipping the scales arbitrarily. And you know what this means for us? We're not in a place where we have to earn something from God. It's like, oh, this bad thing happened to me today. I must not have been good enough. Or this good thing happened to me today. It must have been because I did this. No, makes no sense. The Lord, to the Lord belongs a just balance and scales. All the weights in the bag are His work. So as He rules, overall, it's all evaluated justly, fairly, and so we can trust Him. And so we are to evaluate our lives according to His standards, to live according to His rule. Now, if you know, you might have noticed as we read through uh, the text as a whole, verses 1 through 15, when we get to verse 10, we start hearing a lot about a king. And in verses 1 through 9, it was all the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And then verses 10 through 15, in every verse but one, it's the king, the king, the king. And through this, we see how God's intention, his desire, is to exercise his sovereign rule and reign through others. Uh, through the reign of kings. And for Solomon, this was vital and important. But everything that is said about a king can also be said about the Lord. This is how the Lord rules. And so we read in verse 10 that his mouth does not sin in judgment. So as God is the standard for all things, his standard is always righteous. We see that in verse 12. The throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king. What a gift it is to have a God who has not only made everything, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but also exercises just and fair rule over all things. So because of who he is, this leads us to lesson number four, live for the life-giving favor of God. Live for the life-giving favor of God. And we see this initially in verse 3, but it's a theme that comes up again throughout our text. This is really the call of our text. This is the call of Proverbs. It's a call of Scripture. So verse 3 says, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Verse 12 says, It's an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Who's doing all of this stuff? Who's doing all of the establishing? Who's making everything happen? It's the Lord. We see this throughout scripture. We see this in Psalms oftentimes. The prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 7 verse 9 is, may you establish the righteous, O righteous God. In Psalm 37 it says, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. The Lord upholds his hand. When we delight in the way of God, the Lord upholds our hand. Psalm 40 verse 2 says, The Lord set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Then Psalm 90 concludes with this prayer, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. What we must desire and long for is is God to do His work by His Spirit in His way. And so we trust Him and we desire 
his favor. I love verse 15. I've been so affected by verse 15 as I've been meditating on this passage, studying this passage. Verse 15, in the light of a king's face, there is life. And his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. In the light of a king's face, there is life. Scripture talks a lot about light and a face shining and equates this to, to, to God's favor. talks a lot about that. And it's a good thing for the light of a king's face to shine forth on you. That's the best thing. If you want a blessed life, a flourishing life, a good life, the light of the king's face is going to shine upon you. And what do, we, what do we have to do? Well, live for him. That's what we're called to do. But we have a problem, right? We have a problem. We fail to live for him. We all fall short of the glory of God, as I mentioned earlier. We fall short of his standards. We don't trust his promises. We don't trust that he has the power to keep us, to establish our steps. And so we turn away from him. We set up for ourselves other gods. We become our own gods. And we subject ourselves to the righteous judgment of a holy God. But we have a hope this morning. We have a hope this morning in Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God. As Patty read earlier, He is the, the radiance of the glory of God. Shining forth. So I was reading uh, recently 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about this hope that we have and the boldness that we can have because of it. We're not like Moses who couldn't see the light of glory clearly, but we with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is of the Spirit. And where the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Brothers and sisters, he has shown in our hearts Amen. to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This light of the king's face is life to all who look to him, who trust in him. And he doesn't just like brush our sin aside and become unjust. Someone who doesn't punish wickedness is not righteous. Our sin must be dealt with. And then there's this, this incredible truth that's communicated to us in Proverbs 16, verses 6 and 7. By steadfast love and faithfulness, Iniquity is atoned for. Now, in, in context, this is pointing first to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. This is how you, you showed, through your devotion to the sacrificial system, your steadfast love and faithfulness, you, sh you atoned for your iniquity. That was the only way. But where offerings had to be made again and again and again and again to atone for sin, Jesus Christ came as the one true, the final sacrifice and he has became, become for us the righteousness of God. 
And so we walk in the fear of the Lord and we turn away from evil. And then I love this in verse 7. It says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So in the first sense, this is speaking to just the sovereignty of God and God's blessing on those who walk in ways that honor him, right? And, and God will bring peace to their lives. But when we read this through a gospel lens, through Christ as, the lens of Christ as wisdom, read it again. When a man's ways please the Lord. Whose ways has ever pleased the Lord? Only one man's ways have ever pleased the Lord, and that was Jesus. He lived a life that we could not live, a life of perfect obedience, a life of perfect righteousness. And what does God do? He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. Once we were his enemies, as we sing, now we are seated at his table. Though we were dead in our sin, he has made us alive together in Christ. Though we had exchanged the, the truth about God for a lie, Christ, our wisdom, has come, has shown in our hearts and given us the light of the glory and knowledge of God. In the light of a king's face, there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. Jesus Christ is the one who has come, and through him we have forgiveness of all our iniquity. Through him, our life has been redeemed from the pit. He is the one through whom we are crowned with steadfast love and mercy. So because of Jesus, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions and our sins from us. As we come to Proverbs, it can be tempting, and I think many of us will often read it as just do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. Like this commencement speech. I mean, where it's just kind of, all right, these are the rules. This is, these are the things you got to do. Dream big. I don't remember the second. Work hard. Make mistakes. Be kind. Right? Do, 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 do. But when we come to Proverbs, we cannot read it apart from coming to Jesus. Again, the wisdom of God. Christ, our wisdom. And when we see the life that we have in Him, what a hope we have in the midst of every circumstance. It gives us hope in the midst of suffering. It gives us direction in the midst of confusion. It gives us peace in the midst of adversity. All we have, all we need, all we want is Jesus. So brothers and sisters, may we come to him, may we look to him, may we trust in him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Oh Lord, we are weak and frail and wayward and wandering. Sinful people who fall short of your standard of righteousness who often walk foolish paths. But by your grace, you are making us new. 
You have given us new life, the resurrection life of Jesus. So would you help us to delight in your ways and to walk in your ways? Would your favor be upon us as we look to you? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.